Dotnet Rocks episode 908, recorded live Friday, September 13th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Windows Azure, who wants you as an MSDN subscriber to activate your free Windows Azure credits and start building your own dev test environment in the cloud. Activate before September 30th for a chance to win a 2013 Aston Martin V8 Vantage sports car. Go to dotnetrocks.com slash Azure to enter and win. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back. It's Dotnet Rocks. It's a geek out show. We're going back to space today. Can't help myself. There's so many cool things going on right now. I had to do it. All right. Well, before we jump in, better know framework. <laughs> got one for a geek out how cool what do you got buddy well actually i don't have anything technical it's a joke <laughs> you're messing with me actually it's a story okay uh i can't verify i can't vouch for its validity but it doesn't matter stories are great so scientists at nasa built a gun specifically to launch standard four pound dead chickens at the windshields of airliners, military jets, and the space shuttle, all traveling at maximum velocity. The idea is to simulate the frequent incidents of collisions with airborne fowl to test the strength of the windshields. So British engineers heard about the gun and were eager to test it on the windshields of their new high-speed trains. Arrangements were made, and a gun was sent to the British engineers, and when the gun was fired... The engineers stood shocked as the chicken hurled out of the barrel, crashed into the quote-unquote shatterproof shield, smashed it to smithereens, blasted through the control console, snapped the engineer's backrest in two, and embedded itself in the back wall of the cabin like an arrow shot from a bow. The horrified Brit sent NASA the disastrous results of the experiment, along with the designs of the windshield, and begged the U.S. scientists for a suggestion. NASA responded with a one-line memo, defrost the chicken. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you check Snopes on chicken gun, because Mythbusters has done this, like it's been done a bunch of times, there are shreds of truth of the whole thing. I bet. Right? I mean, they really do fire chicken carcasses into jet engines, into windscreens, because it's a real test for a real problem. And it's a real problem, man. And you really, really, really do need the thought out. <laughs> you really do. <laughs> <laughs> the, the question is whether or not that actual event happened exactly that way, and nobody seems to be able to prove uh, that. Probably not, but you know, it's a good story. It is very funny, and it's one of those, <laughs> yeah, it's a good joke because of exactly that. You totally... Of course, duh. Yeah, of course, right? that's a moment. It goes to the heart of how we feel as developers all the time. Oh yeah, right? you you write some code and you go and it doesn't work, and you go to somebody and then they say, "Did you defrost the chicken?" <laughs> <laughs> I think that should be the catchphrase from now on. For a second pair of eyes that immediately sees the problem, yeah. they defrosted your chicken. All right, thanks. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh man. 
So who's talking to us, Richard? The biggest problem we've got with Geek Outs is we get lots and lots of comments, and we don't do enough Geek Outs to possibly read as many of the great comments as we've got. Right. And i just looking at episode 900, which was the last Geek Out we did mm -hmm. at that conference, talking about automated driving, which lots of people liked. I came down with two comments that I think I have to read them both. Okay. And we'll send them both a DNR mug, because what can you do? Sounds great. Plus, they sort of go together. So the first one comes from Tim Griff, who says, uh, Hi, guys. Congrats on 900 episodes. Generally, I don't like to complain. But for a Geek Out podcast, I would have loved it so much more if you had discussed the tech behind the cars more, rather than dedicating most of the podcast to predictions on what could happen in the future. Hmm. I would have liked to have known what about the cars that are actually looking at in order to drive and what limitations currently are. For example, do they work on all the country roads that have no markings where the widths are changing from single lane to double lane and the only way you know is the width of the road? Mm. Also, I question your prediction on how many less cars there would need to be. My car may only be used for three or four hours a day, but all the people I work with there use their cars in the same hours. I don't know any actual stats, but having a guess based on experience on motorways, the commuting hours of the day double the number of cars. Mm. I can't see the automated taxi service ever having enough capacity to reach this demand. As for the rest of the day, they would have to double the number of cars needed. Where would all the cars go during this time? People's own cars live either at home or at work in a space provided by the employer or the owner. Mm. A taxi car service would need space that the taxi service would have to pay for. Mm -hmm. The future you both discussed sounded nice, and there are many days I would love to just sleep all the way to work, but I think a constant issue, we all want to travel at the same time, which creates a fundamental flaw with the idea. I've had a lot of thought uh, about this since that show. Right. Because, you know, we were sort of thinking on our feet. Well, I was anyway. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I can see owning a car and having it parked in my driveway and taking it taking me where I need to go at the beginning of the day and then going home parking back in the driveway and then yep. coming to get me when I need it to get me. And I can also see my uh, using that as a source of income to, you know, from my friends, my family, whoever who may not have cars to be able to rent it out and, you know, in an automated way. Just, you know, the way that we were talking about having these taxi services do it. So maybe it's a... a, a, a there's room for, you know, personal rental, you know, that kind of thing to, to sort of take up the slack. Because I agree with what he said, you know, keeping big fleets of cars around is is no easy or, you know, inexpensive task. Although admittedly, when you have an automated car, you can park things way closer together. Sure. You know, you now you get into that valet parking mode where because they can self-shuffle, yeah. you can be a lot more efficient with the storage of vehicles. And we mm. did talk about the idea that you would tend to do more carpooling if it's automated and you see a me an immediate financial benefit from right. it. Yeah. Right. If you don't have to own the car, if you're just paying per trip and you can get a discount on the trip and it knows how much time it'll actually delay you and the car is built so that you really have to talk to the other person anyway. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? So, you know, the future probably looks like it may be an amalgam of all of these things. And, um, you know, more options is better. That just means that um, we have an agile future. And, and I do want to address Tim's 
other issue here at the beginning of the thing, which was we didn't talk enough about the technology of the car. I focused on one particular technology, the one that the Google did, because it's right. the one that actually came from Carnegie Mellon and so forth, which was the LiDAR approach. Yeah. And what's brilliant about LiDAR is that it doesn't count on physical road marking artifacts that humans need to track roads. It does see those things and recognize them, but it looks at everything. So yes, it can drive on country lanes and it can see problem damage to the road or objects flying at it and deal with those variations. In fact, better than humans can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, it's th- that being said, it's not perfect. Right. You know, we're still, there's some issues around extreme weather, conditions where humans are really good at filling in the gaps that technology still struggles with. You know, you can drive in the fog because you don't need a lot of inputs to be able to figure out what's going on. Right. Right. right? Where LIDAR, while it happens to be able to see through fog, may have more trouble in stuff like sandstorms. So it's an interesting problem. So, Tim, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And uh, let me read this other one, and then we'll send a mug to them as well. Okay. So this comment comes from Edward Little, who says, I've always found the Geek Out shows to be entertaining, but I have to admit that, at least for me, the number of aha moments in any one Geek Out has been somewhat limited Hmm. until now. This time, you truly outdid yourselves. I had never really given self-driving cars much thought beyond the obvious safety and convenience benefits of letting the car drive itself. After listening to this show, it became evident that a likely outcome of this technology would be nothing short of a complete rethink about our approach not only to transportation, but also such diverse topics as land use and household asset Mm. allocation. Yep. Another topic for rethinking that you touched on briefly at times is productivity. There are a number of jobs, such as sales and business analysis, that require a high degree of face-to-face interaction with clients and other stakeholders. As a result, some very bright and motivated workers are spending hours out of each day operating the controls of an automobile while listening to some AM radio hack spout off about immigration (laughs) or Obamacare. Or .NET rocks. (laughs) Such a good line. Yeah. Regardless of one's views on Obamacare or immigration, most would agree that this sort of time allocation doesn't add much value to the job at hand. In a self-driving car, time spent moving from one appointment to the other would be spent more productively. Not even more productively, but that would be considered at work. Yeah, sure. You'd be at work the whole time. You could could consider uh, the commuting time the you know half of your day if it takes that you know that just frees up a whole bunch of employment possibilities we and you get back to this idea of you only go to the meetings right right you're doing your email while you're on your way to the meeting that whole idea that you arrive at work and then start your email i don't think anybody does that anymore anyway you just do it on the phone you could have a three-hour commute go to lunch do go to an hour to meeting and then a three-hour commute back and you would be working the whole time yeah it's always productive, and one would argue more productive because you, it's the ultimate office. It's very private. Very private. Yeah. No, I dig that a lot. Uh, and as Edward finishes, productivity soars, the economy shines, and AM talk radio fades into the past. Yeah! What's not to like? Oh, except .NET Rocks maybe fades into the past, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, we are talking about a scenario where <laughs> that might actually damage our own listenership. People listen on their commute. They do. What will we do? <laughs> We're ushering her in our own demise, whatever. That's oh, scary. Yeah. Edward, love your comment. Thanks so much. We really enjoyed the future look part of this. And I and I hope we can balance the two things of giving detailed explanations of where things are at and then also giving some ideas of looking into the future. Uh, so a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you as well. 
And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. They're on Android, iPhone, WinPhone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises, who'd love to build an app for you. Just go to diatomenterprises.com. Before we get into space, we need to talk about this uh, Azure MSDN uh, sweepstakes. Absolutely, because everybody needs an Aston Martin. <laughs> yeah, me. It's too bad <laughs> we can't win it. No, well, in theory we could, but let's face it, we really don't want to, no. because if we did, that would be bad. They'd be mad at us. So the, here's the deal. If you have an MSDN subscription, and we all do, you get Azure credit every month. Right. Uh, an ultimate uh, subscription gets you $150 in Azure credit a month. All you got to do is activate it and start using it. And if you do that before... September 30th, you are automatically entered into the MSDN Windows Azure sweepstakes, and the grand prize is a uh, the real Aston Martin, not a, a simulation, not a right. remote control car, an actual car. And we have a special URL for you to go to to do that, and it's easy to remember, .netrocks.com slash Azure. Easy. That's it. .netrocks.com slash Azure. Just go there now, sign up, make some stuff in the cloud, and win an Aston Martin. What more could you want? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> all right, Mr. Campbell, what's this all about? Asteroid mining. <laughs> <laughs> There's gold in them, our asteroids. Uh, yeah, you know, you can get a cream for that. <laughs> so when we were planning the 900th episode, we actually sent out a survey to the attendees of that conference. We gave them three choices for upcoming geek outs. Yep. Uh, they were automated driving, asteroid mining, and barbecue. 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 And uh, automated driving one, which is why we did it there. And I promised we'd do the other two. And there was a big battle about which one to do first. But uh, I have specific plans for the barbecue show that we haven't been able to fulfill yet. So mm -hmm. we're going to do the asteroid mining one. And it, as happens with any good geek out, as I dug deeper into it, everything I thought about was wrong. Wow. And plus the whole space conversation. Like, have you seen the NASA release that they've now confirmed that Voyager 1 is in interstellar space? Yes, outside the solar system. First object ever. Only took them 30 years. And that's, you know, huge, amazing. There was another really interesting piece of research that came back, and it came from Curiosity. And we did a show on Curiosity a while ago, but I had no idea what this was going on. So there's a sensor on Curiosity that measures radiation release, and it's got a lot of capabilities. It's very a very, very smart sensor. I'm amazed they haven't flown one like this before, but they hadn't. Hmm. And the intent of this sensor was to measure radiation levels on the surface of Mars with an eye to what is NASA going to need to do to protect astronauts on Mars. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. Here's the brilliant bit. Okay. Somebody, some smart scientist thought, you know, we should just turn it on while we're underway. Hmm. Why don't we measure how much radiation is actually in the interplanetary space between Earth and Mars? Why not? And note that this sensor is then on Curiosity in its folded up condition inside the reentry aeroshell, inside the flight chassis that flew to Mars. So basically a double-hulled protected sensor. And their thinking was, you know, what are we going to measure there? You never guess what they measured. A lot of radiation. Catastrophic radiation. Yeah. And, like, it's it's seriously bad. So NASA sets very specific guidelines for how much radiation exposure they allow their astronauts to have. Because if you're going to go into space, even to low Earth orbit, you are going to increase your radiation dosage. Sure. 
And the threshold is a 3% increase in cancer risk based on all kinds of medical analysis. They, they, they know what the dosage rate is that makes that acceptable. It's one of the reasons that space station missions for astronauts are limited to six months. Because mm. even in low Earth orbit at 200 miles up, the radiation dosage after six months at that level is high enough that you're pushing against the threshold and you must come down. Oh, and by the way, you can't go up again. Oh, and, and so even as that radiation number comes comes in on the news, hundreds of thousands of people have apparently signed up for a one-way ticket to Mars. Yes. Everybody's keen. Now, they they figure the dosage is so high that there's a fairly good chance that at least one of the astronauts on the way to Mars would have acute radiation sickness, would go blind, right. or becoming uncontrollably ill, basically would be incapacitated. Yep. And, they, and it wasn't just solar radiation. Solar radiation, they think they can manage. It's the interstellar radiation. It's this high-energy gamma? gamma particles. Yeah, gamma particles. Those are nasty. And there's enough of them out. You remember, this, again, was a sensor that was already protected by hulls. Right. And it was still being hit often enough. They're like, holy cow, this is bad. It's funny that that, that hasn't been, uh, you know, recorded until now. And that all of the missions that have been sent to Mars, I guess the, the radiation doesn't affect the gear. Yeah, well, gear is remarkably resilient to radiation, but we, you know, haven't tried to bring anything back either. So yeah. we don't know what the radioactivity levels on those would be. And this is about biological damage, not actually metallic damage. No, sure. You know, but it... it Speaks to, we've got fairly tough issues to crack around mm. uh, Mars. Yeah. Uh, it's not that, in, and, in, you know, do we really want to do a boots and flags mission? Because we can do that. We're probably, you know, there's a chance we're going to kill the astronauts in the process. But does that mission make sense? Mm. And, uh, you know, that's, we keep talking about it, but it's, it's not that far along. But really, you know, taking that data and then looking at asteroid mining, because asteroid mining has a lot of the same problems. And asteroid mining has become a big deal because the Google guys and Peter Diamatis created planetary uh, resources, the company whose goal it is to mine asteroids. So now what are they mining asteroids for? All kinds of precious metals? Well, that's what they're talking about. Although, honestly, I think it's a red herring. So their point is, they, why asteroid mining at all, first yeah, and why? foremost? right. Well, the first thing is that there are lots of asteroids and that they're actually easier to get to. In fact, they think there's a certain number of asteroids that are easier to get to than the moon in terms of the total amount of energy you need to get there. Okay. So part of this is it's an easier job to go to an asteroid than it is to go to the moon or Mars or anything like that. It's a shorter trip. It takes less energy because there are asteroids in lots of different locations. And... Planetary resources would talk to you about, and they're full of rare, uh, expensive minerals like gold and platinum. And so we could make these missions incredibly profitable because we can sell the gold and platinum on the market. Sure. Right? And I fundamentally have a problem with the idea of re-entering anything. Like, that's just nutty. Well, and especially given the amount of radiation that exists out there that we know about now. Well, we could do this with automated vehicles. Their idea is all automation, all miniaturization. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is if you go mine an asteroid for gold, let's say, and that gold becomes radioactive. Well, and gold you bring it back down. Okay, maybe it's not gold, but you know, I don't yeah. know my metals well enough, but you know, you bring something back that brings with it the radiation of space. 
Yeah, you know, you don't have a lot of concerns there, actually. No? Okay. Right? Like we, again, we get back to this idea of we're not worried about making our spacecraft radioactive. They can deal with that. These are minor hits. Okay. It's nowhere near that level of dosage. It's the genetic damage and the physiological damage that those kinds of hits take to do to bodies. Okay. But, yeah, the the flawed concept here is this idea that we could extract enough platinum to pay for the mission. And I think that's why they're they're talking about this, because everybody gets that idea. Mm. Hey, if we go off and mine gold, we could we, you know, would have enough gold that we could pay for these things, or platinum is the the other common option. Right. The real issue here is that there's not actually that much gold in the world. Yeah. Right? So, you know, they're talking about if you had every piece of gold that exists in the world, it's not it would fit in a room. It's right. just not a lot of gold. Right. Right. It, it, it would be like, a th- I think the last estimate was like 3 million wor- pounds worth of gold. Yeah. So, and, you know, make, make, let's make that 3,000 tons of gold or 1. Uh, 1,500 tons of it's gold. It's not much, though. No, it's just not that much gold. Now, if you go off to an asteroid and you mine that gold and you bring it back, what do you think is going to happen to the price of gold? Well, it's going to drop, of course. You're, it's you're, going to drop like a stone. increasing the supply. Massively, right? Potentially a huge amount. So when you talk about, you know, the, the these days the amount of gold that they mine in a given year is worth like $12 billion. You're going to seriously disrupt that market if you do that. Well, but then there is the, you know, I'm not so sure it's going to seriously disrupt it because gold is one of those things that in and of itself is... Uh, you know, such a beautiful and pure metal. And, uh, you know, it has properties that are just difficult to find in any other metal. I mean, granted that it would be more plentiful. Yes, which is really what sets the price. I mean, the reason people like gold as a as a valuable is that it is relatively scarce and not destructive. Well, and also that it's beautiful, right? I mean, that's probably the number one reason why people like gold is because it's beautiful. I totally disagree with you. That's I mean, I agree like that it. gold is beautiful and it's fine for jewelry. But when you talk about gold bars sitting in a in a vault, okay, well, it's both, right? It's beautiful and it's rare. So, um, certainly, the, the on the rare side, that's going to drive the price down. But, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, you still got to go to space to get it. Yes. Yeah, and it's very expensive. It's very but expensive. I also think this may be a red herring. They're saying this because people understand it and will support it. Mm. And it's not the important part. I mean, the, arguably the most important part about doing asteroid mining is the surveying process. For them to find an asteroid means they pretty much need to catalog every asteroid that's out there, which is going to protect the Earth. Right. That's a good thing. You know, we've been sort of working our way towards that. Now they're talking about a business that clearly would do that. Hmm. But now you get into the next problem of how do you actually mine an asteroid? So you got to find it first, build the sensors to be able to track the thing. Then you've got to fly something to it right? and try and survey it. So now it helps if you actually understand how mining works. Like If you want to, let's go from I found a rock to how much gold do I have? And that's a bunch of steps. So first you find the rock. Now you've got to send a surveyor to it. So that's clearly going to be an automated device you're right. going to fire out to that asteroid. Yeah. But how do you survey earth ores today i mean that's done by people and not only that but very highly trained people who do assessments and take core samples with machines and then do chemical analysis on it yeah i I sort of agree that protecting the earth is the number one goal here and getting people to sign up on that isn't necessarily going to be easy unless we actually have big collisions but 
If you want to see a scary image, Richard, go to tinyurl.com slash asteroid map. So this is a NASA map that shows potentially hazardous asteroids, and it looks like a spirograph, you know, with the sun at the center, and then there's Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars on the outskirts, and then just a spirograph, as what I call it, of asteroid orbits. And there are so many of them that uh, it's just pretty insane to think that, you know, that they're, they're so close. They, they, and there's lots and lots and lots of them. No two ways about it. They're everywhere. And that's just the potentially hazardous. That's not even all of them. Yeah, that's... That's just the ones they grade as PHA. That's, as of this year, there are more than 1,400 known PHAs or potentially hazardous asteroids, each measuring more than 150 yards across. But again, you know, humans aren't preventative. No. Right? This will never sell. Yeah. And you do actually have to mine. Like, there is a goal to get to mining here, right? Like, it's not a bad idea. Like, so you've got to go survey this asteroid. And one of the most interesting things we find out as we're starting to study asteroids more and more is that it, there's not just minerals on asteroids. Yeah. That asteroids are full of volatiles, too. Hmm. They've got they've got water ice on them. Hmm. They've got carbon deposits. They've got clays on them. Like, it's really interesting what all has been found on asteroids with just the few spacecraft we've built so far. So right away, you know, you want to talk about an asset in space, stop worrying about bringing stuff back to Earth and start thinking in terms of space. Water ice is insanely valuable in space. In space, yeah. Because you you can get hydrogen and oxygen from it. Right. And currently, you know, we spend a huge amount of money hauling hydrogen and oxygen from the surface up to space. Mm. So... If, if you talk about sort of the first viable product you could make in space, and that's where the asteroid mining ultimately gets interesting, it's the hydrogen and oxygen part. How do we capture that stuff and store it? And I hate to say it, but as you start really looking at what it takes to mine an asteroid, it is so unsexy. Really? Best, best system I've seen, you put the asteroid in a bag. <laughs> <laughs> you put the asteroid in a bag. You know, what do you mean? Cover it with plastic wrap and you're it basically you <laughs> that's what you're talking, buddy. It's, it's so stupid, but it's true. Because asteroids aren't necessarily solid, right? They yeah. may be made up of fragments. So the idea that you would, you know, do the Armageddon thing and fly up and lock onto the side of it and then just stick some boosters on and off you go, probably shatter the thing. It'll go all over the place. So at least for asteroids up to a certain size, and we can make pretty big bags. You would bring a spacecraft close to that asteroid. You would literally expand a bag around it, and you would net it. Hmm. The, ne- the next question after you get to the thing and you're ready to survey it and so forth is, do you bother to move it now or later? Right. Should we put this into a stable orbit somewhere? Right. Uh, you know, an orbit off of the moon or L5. There's mm-hmm. a number of stable Lagrangian orbits that you can use. Right. Where the, the, but it t- costs delta V. It costs money to move an asteroid. Right. So, you know, I suspect they would survey in situ. So you'd get to it and then you'd put these surveying systems down. And surveying's hard, right? Humans normally do it. Actually building technology to drill cores in zero G, right. which means you need to press against something and then to actually test those cores meaningfully. You know, each type of ore that you go after has a different kind of test. And we're not sure what's plentiful. You know, asteroids get away from an interesting rule. I don't know if you've ever heard this. This is, it's it's one of these weird facts. There's this theory that the moon was formed 
from the earth, that it wasn't oh, yeah. a capture. Sure. That it was the, it was the result of a violent impact. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that the Apollo missions proved was that it, that the material the moon was made from was exactly the same as the same as the material on earth, but the moon is too light. It's much it lighter. Doesn't have, a, doesn't have a core, right? Well, it's lower density. So this is what yeah. supports the collision theory. Right. That the, while the Earth had already partially formed, was still molten, but a lot of the heaviest materials had fallen to the center of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Then there was a strike. And that strike blew off lighter weight material from the outer surface of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And it formed into the moon, which made the moon lighter than, than the Earth in density. So was the, uh, the, was the magnetic field in play before then? Probably, but that's hard to know because, you know, in the end, the magnetic field is this molten nickel iron core. Right. And so if that got disturbed, I wondered if it had changed that in any way, meaningful way. It's absolutely possible. And and one of the thoughts I've always had about what ruined Mars is a massive collision that disrupted its core. Right. Uh, because you look at Olympus Mons and the planet surface on the other side, it looks like the whole planet's warped. Right. It isn't, isn't Olympus Mons one of the largest mountains ever? Yes, yeah. it's unbelievable. And it's literally, it's like the planet's bent and it might have broken the core. Yeah. But clearly it didn't break the core on the Earth, so we're okay there. But the reason I bring this up mm. is asteroids haven't undergone that process. The side effect of the moon creation process is that Earth's mineral density is higher than normal. Because mm. we took a lot of the low-density minerals and popped them up and stuck them in orbit. Mm. Mm. And so in some ways, we're an optimal mining environment. We had a huge advantage in mining. And when we start looking at mining asteroids, we're going to have more trouble than that. I see. So just surveying and figuring out what's in the, the in there to see if it's even worth processing is really interesting. And especially when you play the game with with platinums and and gold and so forth, it's a pretty tough yield. Isn't there a certain amount of surveying we can do from Earth with with uh, telescopes? Well, it's hard to you, you can learn base composition, the mm-hmm. type of of asteroid you've got, depending on how much light you've got available to you. And this is one of the things that they're they're that the planetary resources guys are doing. Remember the Arkid, the the space telescope? Yeah. Well, that comes from those guys, and they were building that specifically to find asteroids anyway. Hmm. So, but if you really want to figure out composition, you have to do a spectral analysis. That means you have to hit it with some energy. You right. have to hit it with a laser or something and look at the emission. Yeah. But even then, that only looks at the surface. That's why you have to drill cores. And it only looks at a very small sample. So you have to right. do a lot of sampling, a lot of sampling to determine what the whole thing is made. You might be looking at a, you know, a three square yard deposit of only, you know, a very dense mineral. It may not be completely spread out. Well, especially when you talk about something like gold or platinum or anything right. like that, they tend to come in veins. Right. So you may again, completely miss it. Yeah, human eyes are good at figuring that out, but it's tougher to build machines to figure it out. Yeah. But okay, let's put the, right. the prospecting problem aside. And let's presume that you, you know, in fact, let's go a different direction entirely. Let's stop worrying about those rare materials. Let's go after the most common material. Because I think this there's a this bigger idea of the real reason I want to mine asteroids in space is to build stuff in space. Okay. Okay. Now, right now, when I want to fly stuff into space, I'm all concerned about its size and its weight because Mm -hmm. lifting it is expensive. Mm -hmm. But if I don't have to lift it anymore, if it's already up in space, I care less about those things. What I really want is what's easier to work with and what's plentiful. And it turns out what's plentiful in asteroids is what's, in some degrees, what's plentiful on the Earth. Nickel and iron are plentiful in asteroids. Mm. And especially nickel, relatively easy to work with and relatively easy to find. Mm. Because 
think about the next step. You found an ore body. Now you have to extract it. You right. have to build a machine that's actually going to cut that ore away from the rest of the asteroid. You got to purify it. Well, refining. Refine it. Is so every type of ore has a different refinement process. Usually they involve heat though, and heat is usually uh re requires fire and fire requires oxygen. So how does that work? Well, we can and we can make heat with like actually we use magnetics for 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 blast furnaces for iron these days. So hmm. given I have lots of electricity, which hmm. theory I should be able to do, yeah. I can generate that, but every one of those heat-based steps involves separation hmm. which needs gravity. Yeah. Yeah. So when you start thinking about what it takes to or refine magnets. metals in space, you're going to have to spin that ore to create the simulated gravity and or, heat it up. Or in the case of iron, I suppose you could use magnets, but not with nickel, I don't think. Yep. Well, you know, you're exactly right. We could use magnets for some of it once you heat it up and try and separate it that way. Mm -hmm. But creating the refining process is really tough. Yeah. On the other hand... Once you've got some more or less refined ore, now, you know, there's some interesting things you can start to do. It doesn't have to be pure metals. It just has to be strong enough that you could start building structures with it. Hell, just, you know, 3D printers. Yeah. You know? Well, most 3D printer designs today depend on gravity because gravity is pretty common around here. <laughs> so what we really need is a, is a gravity machine. <laughs> or, you know, but there are a group of people working on a zero-G 3D printer. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, I'm all over that. Yeah. Like, because there's where stuff gets interesting is now, can we make stuff in space? Well, what, I mean, this is a crazy, stupid question, I'm sure. But what about, you know, spinning, spinning you around in space to sort of simulate gravity? Absolutely doable. But you know, the funny thing is, we've never done it. Yeah, we get we get back to that whole conversation about Mars, right? Right. The damage of you not having zero G. So, oh, we should really build a spacecraft that spins. You know what? We've never actually done that. Mm. Built a spinning spacecraft that could create and and actually understand the effects of all of that. Yeah. But you know, I, I'll I'll include a link to this. There's a website called MadeInSpace.us that is building a zero G 3D printer. And this is where, you know, we start to have some real fun with this whole thing. If we can solve the, the, the process of doing, uh, the refining and get some basic metals out, now we can start building things with them. And mm. construction in space makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Solves a lot of problems and, and provides a real benefit. Cause now you start building spacecraft in space. You're going to probably build the hard parts down on the land. A lot of the electronics and stuff are going to be pretty hard to build in space. Well, you know, I could see it being a piecemeal effort, you know, you just starting slow and increasingly getting more and more complex. Yeah. Yeah. But those, I think the big thing here is take the heaviest things and mm -hmm. make them first. Mm -hmm. And the reality, of course, is you'll make them out of materials. You don't really care about the mass of the materials all that much. Mm. I mean, from a propulsion point of view, it might be a bit of an issue, but you don't have to lift it out of a gravity well anymore. So right. working in nickel iron, just because it's plentiful and relatively easy to refine, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Sure. And also, imagine how different a spacecraft's going to look if you don't have to fit it into, some, into a rocket you have to push into, the, into orbit. Yeah, yeah. You can start to build very differently. Sure is interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I've been going back to how do we really get to Mars? And part of me is just acknowledging the fact that one of the huge problems you've got is trying to get back. 
because you have to store fuel all the way there and then be able to use it to come back. In Zubrin's case for Mars, he came up with a design where you actually fly the return ship to Mars first and it refuels on the surface of Mars. Yeah. It uses a, a factory to extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and creates methane from it. So that before humans actually head to Mars, there's already a spacecraft on Mars that can get them back, which is a pretty cool idea. Yeah, we talked about that in the Mars show. Yeah, way back when. But the uh, most other designs talk about shipping fuel all the way to Mars and back again. And you know, we've never stored cryogenic fuels for very long. We don't know how. Hmm. Keeping liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen liquid over a long period of time takes a lot of energy. Yeah. And so, you know, the longest we've ever stored a, a cryogenic fuel is about a week. The Apollo service module actually had liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen on board, and they budgeted in a boil-off that because the sun is pouring a lot of energy into the side of that spacecraft with yeah. all the insulation, they're still losing fuel the whole time. Every time I hear about the, you know, the uh, terraforming is another one, you know, going to Mars, getting to Mars, colonizing Mars, terraforming and all that stuff, I think, man, how about we terraform the Earth first? Yeah, and we and that's something we it's we, cheaper. There's so much land here that we haven't used, and uh, you know we have problems to solve right here. And there's folks that have been proposing things like how to sequester carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere on yeah. mass, right? Using terraforming type tactics, right? Like dropping iron into the ocean to cause algae blooms because the algae will consume a bunch of carbon dioxide in the process, hmm. and then when they die, they'll carry that carbon dioxide to the to the uh, bottom of the ocean, which they do anyway. It's just all we'd be doing is adding the material to grow a lot more algae so you do it all at once. But hmm. there's always consequences to doing those things. Right, sure. Sure. And uh, and every, most folks are nervous about even trying that. They're like, ah, let the planet clean itself up. We should just stop making a mess. Yeah, well, you got to, I think coming at it from both angles is smart. I think so too, but, and, and almost inevitable. Yeah. Anyway, for me... More and more, I'm looking at asteroid mining as the next logical step simply because it begins the true space economy. Mm. That in the end, it, what the stuff that's in space needs to be used in space. Yeah. You think about the colonization of the new world. It started out with the Spanish carrying gold back to the old world. And I think that's exactly what Planetary Resources is proposing, is a new version of that, the Spanish conquest of the new world. But it didn't take very long before you just stopped shipping stuff back. It was utilization in place that mattered. Are we going to be going to war with other countries over these resources? Well, yes. It's inevitable, isn't it? Wherever humans go, they tend to fight with each other. Yeah. It's absolutely inevitable. And I find it really interesting if you look at the latest wave of movies coming out for the winter and into the spring next year, starting to talk more about combat in space. You know, often uh, those sorts of behaviors are and those sorts of thoughts are being reflected in our popular media. Hmm. So, yeah, it, that's inevitable. And uh, for better or worse, we've got humans in the space early on in our evolution because we were using it as a, as a way to fight a war without killing quite as many people. Right. And it's set fallow to some degree for the past 40, 50 years as we've caught up with that. But and we're still solving some very challenging problems. But you know, I think the days of boots and flags goals in space are over. Yeah, you're probably right. And now it's about actually taking humans to their next stage of evolution, which is that we are more survivable if we're in more locations. Yeah, and, and probably well, okay, there is that. I I think uh, one of the things that may that has the potential to really bring the countries together is the shared threat. 
of asteroids, you know. Well, and, and how convenient that Russia had that amazing asteroid incident. Yeah. And just helped remind everybody. But already we feel like we're forgetting that again. Well, more there was been more fireballs recently that have yep. exploded. Uh, I can't remember where the last one was, but there seems to be a lot of more than more than usual, uh, you know, baseball size debris entering the atmosphere. Lately. Well, the stats show that it, it it always goes on. It's just that because most of the planet isn't populated, you don't hear it. Yeah, it's it, every day we have an, an an event near the caliber of the one that happened in Russia. Huh. It just doesn't normally happen over a city. Is we've mostly got ocean, so that mostly happens in oceans. Mm. And even when we do have land, you know, Siberia is a pretty empty place. Northern Canada, pretty empty place, yeah. and it represents a lot of the land. Right. Yeah, we're mostly concentrated around the cities, right? Yeah, and we just we miss it most of the time. This stuff's going on fairly often. Anyway, I am very excited about asteroid mining. I think it is this next step forward. Uh, I love that the tech billionaires are pushing on these things. Because they come at it from a very different angle. We're both fans of Elon Musk, right? And he's a guy who's basically taken his money and bet himself on doing stuff better. The Falcon 9 is an amazing rocket, half the price of its competitors. And it's the next step forward. And he's the guy who also said, I intend to retire on Mars and live a long life there. Hmm. Uh, how we're going to solve all those other problems is fairly tricky. But I think one of the best ways we do it is to mature the technology needed to manufacture stuff in space so we can build very different spacecraft. There's a thing called a free return trajectory. Heard of it? No. So a free return trajectory was actually figured out. Uh, Buzz Aldrin did a lot of his PhD on orbital mechanics around things like free return trajectories. Okay. So it turns out that if you give it a, an exact speed, in fact, Apollo 13 used this. After Apollo 13 had their explosion that crippled their their uh, service module, they were not able to use the engine on the service module anymore. And that right. was the engine that was designed to put them into orbit around Moon. But the Apollo engineers, being very smart people, had put the Apollo capsule on a trajectory that was free return. In other words, if you did nothing, it would go once around the Moon and fling you back to Earth. Okay which is what they actually did. In the end, they still had to fire an engine, and they fired the lunar module engine because they needed to get back Earth sooner because they were going to run out of oxygen before they got there. But there are free return trajectories that tend to go back and forth like that. And believe it or not, there is a free return trajectory, a couple of them, between the Earth and Mars. Now, okay, so I, I'm not sure what you mean. So if you if you aim a rocket at a certain speed and at a certain direction... right. It will whip around the planet and come back. That's right. Like a boomerang. That's right. You got it. Not only that, but I can shape that orbit so that one part of it is very short and one part of it is very long. So I can build an orbit between Earth and Mars with a spacecraft so that the flight time from Earth to Mars is about eight months. Mm. The other half where it comes back to the Earth is about 30 months. Yeah. Okay. So imagine this, I build a bunch of spacecraft, and some of them, I put four or five of them in that orbit, uh -huh. so that every few months, there's another spacecraft going to Mars, yeah. and then in between, it's got that long 30-month before it comes back again. So you space them out properly, so let's say every eight months, you've got an Earth-to-Mars route, and then I build other spacecraft that are doing another kind of orbit, so that they've got about an eighth-month route going the other way. Right, okay. So now, you call that's called an, a, a free-return train. 
many automated spacecraft flying in these repeated orbits so that if I want to fly humans between the Earth and Mars, all i got to do is build the small spacecraft that can accelerate up to catch one of these things as it passes close to the Earth, dock, ride it to Mars, come off, slow myself down to my small spacecraft with a small amount of fuel, land at Mars, do my thing, and then catch a different one going back the other way. Hmm, interesting, huh? So this makes no sense if you're building spacecraft on the Earth. Right. But if you're building spacecraft in space and you automate the snot out of them and you give them long-life power plants, possibly solar because you're dealing with inside of the Mars orbit, so there's probably enough electricity to go around, but possibly nuclear. Right, right. You get them up to their speed and they imagine something like the space station yeah. that lasts for 20 or 25 years in a repeat in one of these long-duration orbits between the Earth and Mars. Wow. You use a given vehicle once every three years, effectively. But that's fine. You know, you're going to get a certain number of uses on it. And now you have steady, available transport to and from Mars all of the time. Interesting. That's what happens when you're starting to be able to manufacture in space, because the costs go down dramatically. Mm. Building more machines is just not that big of a deal. This is highly automated and repeatedly done. And now you can do what you need to do with the humans, which is move them quickly. And launching from space requires significantly less energy and therefore less money. Right. Well, consider the free, that free return orbit yeah. means no more energy necessary. You're just operating the spacecraft. It's always flying that orbit all the time. You don't have to t- give it any delta V anymore. The spacecraft you use to intercept it needs fuel, but you're mining that fuel up in, in orbit. So you have enough fuel on board the ship to get to orbit. Then you dock with a tanker that's been fueled up with these cryogenic fuels uh, from the mining operations you already have. And that gives you the additional fuel to now catch the train spacecraft, give you your ride. Well, you didn't say that the train spacecraft was in a, a you know, um, an orbit that would perpetuate. Well, that's the whole thing about free return orbits. They just keep going over and over and over. Oh. So it's a train and you don't have to do anything. So it's perpetual motion. It, well, it's not perpetual motion. You are actually borrowing energy from planets every time you do that. Every time you go around the Earth, the Earth slows down a little tiny bit. Right. And then you go around Mars, and you slow down Mars a little tiny bit. Right. That's where the energy come from. It's just that the mass yeah. difference between your spacecraft and that planet is, well, fairly dramatic. Fairly dramatic. That's pretty cool, Richard Campbell. Well, and it's these are the pieces that go together once you think this whole thing out. That if we can solve asteroid mining, refining, and manufacturing, we build different spacecraft, and we use them in a different way. Awesome. You got more? I could go on forever, buddy, but let's stop there. Let's stop there. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) If you want to hear more, why don't you catch us at one of these conferences or on the road trip and buy us a glass of whiskey, and I'm sure Richard will expound on the subject quite a bit. Never seems to be a problem for me. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Thanks a lot. You bet, man. It's good to talk. Always learn something talking to you. All right. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. 
.NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Transmit a band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a type